All right. Well, we're going to jump right into it because we've got a lot to cover today. Uh, we have been in this uh, series called Through the Bible in Seven Weeks. We started off by uh, covering the first five books of the Bible, starting with Genesis, uh, which dealt with beginnings, right? From the very beginning of time to the beginning of the people of Israel, uh, went through uh, Deuteron- all the way to Deuteronomy. And then we walked through the history books from Joshua. Uh, to Esther, 12 books that detail the life of the people of Israel during their time in the Promised Land. Uh, And then we looked at the five wisdom books that contain practical, common sense advice for us, uh, from Job to Proverbs to Song of Songs. And then we got into the 17 prophetic books, beginning with Isaiah, going all the way to the end of the first section of the Bible, the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. And if you're joining us for the first time, just as a reminder, let you know that the Bible is separated into two different sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the section before Jesus and the section during and after Jesus. It's made up of 66 books uh, written by over 40 authors over the course of hundreds of years. And it means that it's important. It's important for us to know. It's important for us to understand and You could literally spend hours and hours every day of your life studying all that there is of Scripture and still not cover it all. Uh, This was intended to just be a 30,000-foot view overview of the Bible to help inspire you and uh, maybe stir something up in you to begin reading it more on your own. The New Testament, the section during Jesus and after Jesus, is... Uh, starts with the four biographies, the four Gospels of Jesus, uh, named after the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, We took a week and walked through all four of those, and then last week, Pastor Lucy did the impossible task of going through all 22 letters that were written to people and to the churches, uh, going from Acts all the way to Jude. Right? That's, that's a lot. And if you were here last week, you know it was a lot. Um, but here's the thing. She got through all, of, all 22 letters in 36 minutes. I'm going through one book today, and I don't know how to tell you this, but it ain't going to be 36 minutes. All right. We've covered 65 of the 66 books. means there's one left. We're going to spend the entirety of this morning Going through this one book, it's the book of Revelation. The reason we're going to devote an entire morning into this book is not because it's more inspired or of more value than the other books of the Bible. It's because it's weird. Right? It's different. It's different than the others. It's kind of in its category of its own. It's not the Gospels, right? It's not a biography of Jesus, although Jesus is featured prominently in the book of Revelation. It's not one of the letters that was written to one of the churches, although there are seven letters to seven churches within its writings. What Revelation is, more than anything, is the writing down of a vision that a man had from God, a man by the name of John. This is actually his fifth contribution to his Bible writings. He also wrote the Gospel of John. And then, as Lucy covered last week, he wrote the three letters, uh, 1, 2, and 3 John. 
John was the first cousin to Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was called the man that Jesus loved, the closest, most intimate friend that Jesus had while he was here on this earth. Revelation is exactly what the title suggests. It's this record, and this is in your notes, a record of the revelation John experienced and saw and heard in this vision. What was revealed to him in this vision is what he put down in writing for all of us. Now, here's how it starts off in Revelation chapter 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present his revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. That's me. And he blesses all who listen to its message. That's you. And obey what it says. That may or may not be you. We'll see. For the time is near. So it's this different kind of book. It's a different kind of language. It just feels different. It's full of imagery and symbolism. And John tries to describe for us what he saw and heard, things that really were honestly beyond descriptive capability of human language, things he didn't even understand. He was just trying to be faithful in recording it for us, as much of it as a a vision of the future. But the vision of the future is multi-layered. And most of us, when we read the book of Revelation, uh, or if we ever decide to read the book of Revelation, have this understanding or this perspective that, that Revelation is about the end times. It's about a future that's going to take place. But really, it's, it's multi-layered. It's multi-dimensional. The first layer or dimension often speaks to the actual time of its writing, to actual events. This is also in your notes. Uh, in the history of John's day. But, but then there's this second layer or, or dimension, however you want to look at it, that comes into play. It's the immediate future that is to come. It's the future of John's generation. Okay, not, not the future related to the end of time. It's the future of, of John's generation. But then there's this third dynamic. Uh, the text can switch and speak to the end of time itself, the events of the last day. So there are often three ways that you can read in Revelation. Uh, and it's important that we understand this multi-layered, faceted approach to Revelation while we read it so that we understand the text more clearly. So, with that in mind, let's turn to Revelation itself. I mentioned that it begins with seven letters. At the beginning of the vision that John receives, there are these seven letters that are written to seven churches. They're addressed to the church itself or, or to its angel, which is a way of referring to the, to the spirit of the church itself. And seven is a key number that we see throughout the Bible, uh, especially in the book of Revelation. In fact, in the book of Revelation, uh, it's referenced 52 different times. Uh, There are references to seven Beatitudes, 
Seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven seats, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven signs, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven golden bowls, seven hills, seven kings, and, of course, seven letters to seven churches. The reason for this is symbolic. It's In the Bible, this number seven represents completeness. Uh, it's fitting that the the use of the number seven uh, is used at the book of Revelation because it's the completion of the Bible. It's also the completion of history and time itself. Now, the purpose and the meaning of the opening letters, these seven letters to the churches, uh, has been, as you might imagine, debated. In fact, everything in Revelation has been debated. See, some see these seven letters as a preview, as a, as a prophecy of church history, that this is what will happen to the churches as they drift further and further from Christ. As the world gets further away from Jesus, uh, as we draw near to the end times, each of the seven denote kind of this era in an increasingly deteriorating picture. However, it's probably the least convincing idea around. There's, there's really nothing in the text that would lead us to that understanding. There's a second idea, a second line of thinking to these letters, is that they were just simply letters to the actual churches, right? The churches of John's day, nothing more. Uh, that these were the message to them for their immediate application in that time. However, it would be difficult to limit uh, these letters just to that time. Why would they include it? Why would it be included for us to read today uh, if it was just for that time? So that brings up the third way of thinking, and that's these that these letters uh, are more holistic, that uh, it's, it's to see them portraying how churches can become or how churches are, not just at that time, but at any time throughout history. That it's really this uh, warning or correction that God is giving to the church forever. And it's that, in my opinion, is the clearest way to take them. However, it's the most uncomfortable, right? Because if, if that's the line of thinking that we take, that that this is for the church, not just then or not just in some distant future, but it's actually for our church, then we have to look at it and begin to apply it to our life and our church today. So to add to that severity, the person speaking in these letters, the author of the letters, is none other, and this is in your notes, none other than Jesus himself. In fact, that's the heart of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus to John for the world. Here's a taste of what the letters sound and feel like. They, they follow a similar pattern, which is kind of like if you've ever been in a, in a conflict situation at work or anything where it's like, here's the things that you're doing really good, but here's the things you need to work on. And they all kind of have this sense to them. In Revelation 2, here's an example of this. I know all the things you do. 
I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered that they're liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. That's a pretty good commendation, right? Deeds, hard work, perseverance, church purity in terms of membership and leadership, doctrinal purity, rejection of false teachers, the endurance of persecution. Well done, church. There's always a but, right? He's saying this is what you've got going for you. This is what you're doing really well, church. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or, uh, or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. I will remove your influence. I will remove your blessing from its place among the churches. And that's the pattern for all of the letters. Commendation and then challenge. Well done in this area, but here's an area that you need to work on. Now, after the opening of the seven letters, John's vision goes crazy, right? I mean, we can grasp the seven letters. We can understand those a little bit, but then things get a little bit weird, and these things can be a lot harder to understand. And as a result, uh, there's a lot of different views about them. There will be a lot of different views here this morning. And so I'm telling you my understanding, my perspective of the scripture based upon my study. So let me just walk you through some of the headlines that just about everybody is interested in. We'll begin, we'll just start off really light, and we'll start with the Antichrist. So, who or what is the Antichrist? Well, the Bible gives us some pretty scary descriptions of the Antichrist. Starting in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, and I saw a beast. In other words, the Antichrist is so evil, so much a, represent, a representative of Satan himself that he can be referred to as the beast. It goes on in verse 2, the beast will have power, throne, and great authority. So the Antichrist is this evil, this beast that will have great power, but that's not all because it goes on in verse 4, it says the whole world followed the beast, and they also worship the beast. In other words, he'll be so influential, he'll be so powerful that according to the Bible's view of the future, he will lead the whole world, and the whole world will bow to him. So what will his leadership look like? Well, in verse 16, it says, He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Now think about that for a moment. What the Bible seems to be saying here is that much of the power of the Antichrist will be tied to economic control. Without the mark of the beast, you will not be able to buy food. Without the mark of the beast, you won't be able to sell anything. In other words, you can't operate within the economy. If you control the money, if you control the economy, you control everything. So what does the 666 mean? I have no idea, and neither do you, so let's move on. 
People have tried to work it out, right? They got all kinds of theories. Some say it's the mark that people will physically wear. Others assign words to numbers and try to guess his name. Others uh, think it's a birth date. I don't know what kind of birth date that would be. Uh, Others think it's the cloud, right? Which if you've ever lost anything in the cloud, you might think that. I think it's AT&T personally. Uh, But the truth is we don't know. We don't know what it is. We don't know what that number represents necessarily. Now, you might have the question or wonder how the Antichrist will set himself up as, as God to be worshipped. Because this is really interesting. There's so much about the Antichrist that is meant to be exactly anti-Christ. A perverse imitation of Christ. The Bible says that one of the ways is that he will go through a seeming de- seemingly death and resurrection in imitation of Christ. This is how it's described in 13 verse 3. The, best, uh, the beast looked as if it had been killed by a wound, but this death wound was healed. Then the whole world was amazed and followed the beast. So the Antichrist is coming. He's evil, really, really evil. He will have great power. He will lead the whole world. He will be in total control, and he'll set himself up as God. Now, some of you think that some of our political leaders are the Antichrist. And I'm saying which one, because it doesn't matter which one. Everybody thinks that one of the things is the Antichrist. And I would just say, well, it's not, because we're so divisive that you would see all of these people following and worshiping them, and that's not the case right now, right? I don't think that it would be that obvious. With that in mind, let's look at another question. What is the tribulation? And what does it have to do with an antichrist and the end of time? The tribulation is this period at the, at the end of time when the antichrist rises to power and rules the world. It's the culmination of Satan's rebellion against God. The tribulation will be a time of great evil. It'll be a time of great suffering, which makes sense if the Antichrist is in charge. So how long will the tribulation and the rule of the Antichrist last? Well, one answer is that it'll last seven years. This is based on a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, Now, what's clear whether it's a full seven years or literal seven years, what's clear is beyond any shadow of a doubt is that the rule that the Antichrist will be at its intensity, it'll be at its height or greatest, at its peak for 42 months or three and a half years. I'll show you in verse five and seven of chapter 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He, is given, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So the idea is that if it's a seven-year run, the first three and a half years, he'll be winning the world's trust. The second three and a half years, we'll see the mask peeled away and who really is in charge. Some think that the 42 months is symbolic of a, uh, of a limited but real time of evil. Some think it's a literal 42 months. I don't know. I don't think it matters because the point is that it's coming. And it's going to be ridiculously awful, but it won't last forever. Now, some might be wondering, well, when is all this going to happen? 
I don't know, and neither do you, so let's move on. Jesus did say, however, that there would be signs before the coming of the Antichrist and the tribulation. Let me read his words for you in Matthew's biography of Jesus. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answered, many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but the end is yet to come. Nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the, from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most people will grow cold, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, and, the end, and then the end will come. So, when you analyze that, you basically come up with eight signs, right? Eight signs that, that Jesus tells us to look for. So I'll just overview those for you. First, there will be false prophets, right? People who claim to be Christ, to be messianic in their leadership, and individu individuals who will rise and teach what isn't true. And they'll try and get people to follow them, but they won't be really God. Now, I know that there are people like David Koresh and Jim Jones, and there's, uh, I, I just watched a documentary of some guru up in Oregon, and, and there's all these people where it's just like so clearly obvious, and we're like, how could you follow that? Why would you drink that Kool-Aid? It doesn't make any sense. However, I think that there will be others who won't be as easily to identify and that will mislead a lot of people. Second, there will be wars and threats of wars. In other words, it will be an age of anxiety and fear, fear of world conflict, fear uh, of the reality of conflict between nations. Third, there will be a rise in natural disasters, famines, earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanoes. Fourth, Christians will be persecuted for their faith. They'll be ridiculed and discriminated against. They won't be the heroes of their time. Instead, they will be preyed upon by their culture. Fifth, a lot of people will turn away from their faith. They will renounce Jesus and no longer believe in him. Sixth, there will be internal division and discord among Christians themselves. Seventh, immorality and insensitivity to immorality will reign. We will engage ourselves in things that embarrass God. We will do it and see it and won't even cause us to blush. Things that were once unthinkable will now become mainstream. The eighth and final sign is that before it all ends, the message of Christ will be proclaimed to everyone in the world. Now, obviously, from a technological standpoint, this has only recently been made possible through the Internet. So we don't know the exact time. But we do know what the world will look like before the end of time comes. And as I walk through all eight of those, if you found yourself thinking, that sounds a lot like the headlines today, you'd be right. It does sound a lot like that. Which brings us to what is known as the rapture. This is the time when Christians will be taken off the face of the earth to be with Christ, which was popularized by the 
the book series called Left Behind and the poorly produced movies uh, that followed them. And more recently, kind of, the HBO series, The Leftovers. But actually, the rapture is never talked about in the book of Revelation. It comes from another part of the New Testament in Paul's first letter to the, to the Thessalonians. Now, what Revelation does seem to indicate is that the rapture, oh man, this is going to be controversial, that the rapture will take place after the tribulation, at the time of the second coming of Jesus. See, if you've read the Left Behind books, you know that the authors take the view that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. You would be called pre-trib if you believe that. There's some who are mid-trib, and then there's some who are post-tribulation. That Christians, if you if you are pre-trib, you believe that Christians won't go through the tribulation. But it's not actually where most scholars land. In fact, that view is relatively young in its line of thinking. Uh, it's it's really it, it was wasn't even considered before about a hundred years ago, and for eighteen hundred years the church believed and taught only one view that the rapture will come after the tribulation. Now, you may disagree with that, and you may question my theology and all of those things, but here's what I would say. There's so much in the Bible about Christians suffering for their faith at the end of time that it's hard to believe that those who are alive at that time won't go through it. And if you want to disagree with me on that, if you want to get into a debate about when the rapture will happen, I will save you some time. I will not debate you over it. And I hope that you're right. I never wanted you to be more right than in this situation. All right? Because if you're right, that means we don't endure the tribulation. If I'm right, then it means we do. But we can agree to disagree, still love each other, and go to church together. All right, the second coming of Christ. One of the most significant, compelling, and provocative claims that Jesus made was that one day he would come again to this earth. In fact, these are among the last words in the book of Revelation. In chapter 22 and verse 12, it says, Behold, I'm coming soon. And then again, he says it in verse 20, Yes, I am coming soon. But what will that be like? Like, what does the second coming actually look like? When Jesus comes again, how will it be? Because the first time he came, he came in poverty. He came in humble beginnings. He came into, as a baby in a manger. Uh, he, he then was killed, right? Will, will it be like that? Will it be like the, the first time? Uh, well, Revelation paints this picture uh, an interesting picture, actually, but before we look at it, let, let me just give you two headlines. First, the Bible teaches that it will be unexpected. It will surprise people. It, it will catch everybody by surprise, off guard. You won't be able to forecast it in terms of a date. Now, just before uh, service started this morning, I googled, when is Jesus coming back? And there's 178 million responses as to when Jesus is coming back. 
people over the course of human history have listed all of these Bible verses in Revelation and and all of these political events and natural disasters and interpretations of numbers and symbols from the book of Revelation. And in the end, there was one author even who said Jesus was going to come back. He had 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. He spent all of this time and all of this energy, which he was wrong, by the way, just in case you thought we were in the tribulation. So he he got it wrong, and he spent all of this time, wrote a book, spent all this money sending it out to thousands and thousands of people. He poured his life into, into this idea of predicting the second coming of Jesus only to miss one of the most clearly taught principles about the second coming of Christ, and that is nobody knows when it's going to happen, and nobody ever will, ever. There's one group in particular that is famous for this. A lot of their growth has come from telling people that the end of the world is near, that they know when the end is coming. And the only way to escape Destruction is through their organization. And I don't want to name any names, but their initials are Jehovah's Witness. (laughs) In fact, in fact, they predicted that the end of the that Jesus would return in 1874. But it didn't happen. And then they predicted again in 1914 and it didn't happen. And then again in 1915. I'm like, come on, now you're just just every year, right? didn't happen, and they're like, yeah, you're right. So now it's going to happen in 1918. It didn't happen, and then they said it would take place in 1925. Uh, they, then they said it would take place in 1941, and listen to this. They even built a house called Bessarim that would hold King David, Solomon, and Joseph when they returned. And it didn't happen, so they sold the house. <laughs> they said it would take place in 1975. Once again, all the, peoples, the people of this organization sold their homes and their property in anticipation of the end of the world, and it didn't happen. Then a few years ago, after the never-ending stream of embarrassment, they made an announcement that they didn't really know, and they never really knew, and they denied ever saying that they did know. I guess that's the way out, it's just denial. But that's the kind of stuff that Jesus wanted to make sure that we avoided, he wanted us to watch out for, for groups and cults and other organizations that would set themselves up as Christians but believe that, uh, in believing that they know when Jesus is coming back. That, that they knew what no one else would know. And not only will it be unexpected, but his second coming will be triumphant. See, when Jesus came the first time, as I said, it was, in a baby, it was as a baby in a manger. He lived in poverty. This time, Scripture tells us that it will be as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus came the first time, he was welcomed by some shepherds and some wise men. This time, it will be with the heavenly hosts led by the angels, by by the archangel. When Jesus came the first time, his life ended on a cross between two thieves. This time, he will sit on a throne in power and glory. So what is the second coming of Christ for? What's its purpose? Well, the Bible says it's got a a threefold agenda. First, 
Christ will return to gather his followers. That's what the rapture is all about. All those who have died in Christ before will be with him, and all those on the planet who are Christian will rise in rapture with him. Second, he is returning to defeat Satan and the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. Christ will return, but Satan won't give up without a fight. He'll muster the armies of the world to come against and take a stand against Christ in a great battle, the Battle of Armageddon, which isn't going to be that much of a fight. This is how Revelation describes it in chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, who rider is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. The armies of heaven were following him. On his robe he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war. But the beast was captured and thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur." One of the biggest questions that people outside of Christianity have is this. How can a loving God allow so many bad things to take place? Why doesn't he take care of it? Why doesn't he just come down and settle this thing? And the Bible's pretty clear. He will. right? And if, if I could just push back on that thinking a little bit, rather than than us critiquing God for not doing it sooner, maybe, maybe we should fall on our knees and thank him that he hasn't. Think about it for a moment. If, If he were to return this very night and wipe out all evil, all injustice, all sin, how many of us would live to see the dawn? And that's not a judgment against you. I'm just asking the question. We should be glad that he is enduring this with mercy, giving us more time to give even more people the opportunity to turn before the judgment does come. So instead of viewing it as a bad God, it should instead be, dear God, thank you for holding back the justice due this world. There was a missionary who was once asked what Jesus will say when he returns to this earth. When the missionary was asked this question, uh, he remembered what the Bible said, that Jesus would return with a loud shout. And so the student then asked the missionary, yeah, but what's he going to shout? What's he going to say? The missionary thought for a moment, it came to him, and he said, I don't know for sure, but if I had to guess, I think it will be enough. Enough. Enough suffering. Enough starvation. Enough terror. Enough death. Enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness, enough disease. At the end, when he returns, Christ will shout, enough. It's one of the reasons he's coming back. But there's a third reason as well. He's returning to reign on earth. The Bible teaches that after the second coming of Christ, he will rule the earth for a thousand years, a period known as the millennium. Here's how Revelation describes it. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And Christ reigned for a thousand years. This will be a time when the earth and society functions the way it was meant to. It's almost as if at the very end, Christ's victory will be complete and this planet will be restored to the way it was meant to be from day one. 
with God himself in charge, sin and evil completely removed from our life and absolute peace reigning supreme. There'll come a time when how things were meant to be will be. Is it a literal thousand years or a figurative thousand years? I don't know, and you don't know either, so let's move on. It's one of the many areas of Revelation that is a matter of debate, which brings us to the very last event at the very end of time, and that is the great judgment. When all human beings will stand before God and answer for their lives. And you're thinking, wait a minute, he just said all human beings, but I'm a Christian That's why I'm a Christian, so I don't have to stand before judgment. Christians and non-Christians alike will be judged, right? There are some Christians who believe, wait a minute, I'm a Christian so, so that I don't have to be judged, so people don't know my junk, you know what I'm saying? I'm avoiding that embarrassment. I'm avoiding the reality, but it's not true. You will be judged. Only your final verdict will be different. So you'll give an account for your life and you will be judged. When I stand before God, I'll be judged. I'll give an account for my life. There will be a lot of sin. There will be a lot of failure. I will be revealed for who I am, a sinner before a holy God. That's what my book will show. But then Jesus will stand and say, I I, I know, I know that guy, Ryan. I know what his book says, but I want you to close that book, and I'm going to open my book, and I want what's in my book to be his book. See, I know that he has accepted the gift of forgiveness and sought out my leadership in his life, so close his book and open mine. And I'll enter heaven, not because of anything I've done, not because I'm the pastor of Lifehouse Church, it will be because of Jesus. It will be of no goodness on my part or nothing of the works that I can accomplish but because Christ died for me. Here's how it's described in chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and the one enthroned. And then I saw all the dead, great and small, standing there before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books, by the way they had lived. Each man and woman was judged by the way he or she had lived. Anyone whose name was not found inscribed in the book of life was hurled into the lake of fire. It's an important set of verses to read. It tells us that the great judgment will be for everyone. No exceptions. No omissions. Everyone will be a part. Every person who has ever lived will stand before God. Second, it will be final. There will be no second chances. It will stand. Third, it will be forever. And finally, the judgment will be fair. The verdict of the judgment will be right. It will be fair. It will be the one that we deserve. It means He will be just. A good judge is one who not only weighs the evidence fairly, but also carries out the appropriate sentence. If someone is guilty, then the penalty must be carried out. If it's not carried out, the person is not a good judge. They're immoral. They're corrupt. 
one of the biggest questions that people have is, how can a loving God send someone to hell? The answer is, he doesn't. We send ourselves. Each one of us will get what we deserve based on the decisions that we've made in our life. And no one's heart will be breaking more than God's in that moment. See, he has pursued us every day of our life to turn to him. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who during their lifetime said, your will be done. And those who God at the end of time says to them, your will be done. Which brings us to where we will spend eternity. Everybody doing okay? All right. Somebody said in first service, thanks for not doing hellfire and brimstone. Let's talk about where we spend eternity. Comes to eternity, there's two definitions, heaven or destinations, heaven and hell. When it comes to hell and the Bible, people often lump Hades and hell together. They're actually two different places. Hades is where those who are not in a relationship with God go when they die. It's a place of separation from God, but it's not hell. It's where people go awaiting the final judgment that will happen at the end of time for all people. And the counterpart to Hades is paradise, which is different than heaven, but where those who are in relationship with God go when they die. But hell itself But hell itself, also called the lake of fire, is where those who die apart from a relationship with God find themselves after the final judgment. So what is hell? Well, according to Jesus, it's a real place where real people go at the end of a very real judgment. It's filled with unspeakable torment where body and soul can be laid to waste. The best way to understand heaven and hell is this. Heaven is where God is. Hell is where God is not. God is everything that is good, everything that is fun, enjoyable, pleasant, secure, safe, and joyful. And hell is where God isn't and where we're left to ourselves. Evil, suffering, pain, Loneliness, all of those will be present because nothing of God will be there to hold it back. Hell is where we are left to our own choices, left to our decision to live apart from God. But, and I'll be honest with you, this will be the best but you hear in your life. There is a heaven. Here's how Revelation describes it in chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Heaven will be the most dynamic, most exhilarating, amazing experience you could possibly imagine. It's where we will finally be set free to be all that God intended. Free of all that holds us back and and ties us down. See, most of us have this picture of heaven of like these little angels, fat angels sitting on clouds with a harp. Or, or, or we have this picture of heaven that it's just this eternal worship service, right? Where we, it's like church. 
We just come and we just, it's just one, how long are we going to sing? A thousand years, two thousand years? Like, all right already, right? But that's, that's not what heaven is. It's not how it's described. See, heaven is a party. Heaven is, is where we push back the furniture and roll up the carpets, and it's a feast, and it's dancing, and it's laughter. That's what heaven is. I heard a speaker reflect on this and say, remember, when it comes to heaven, Jesus said, when he departed this earth, he said, I, I go to prepare a place just for you, which means Jesus has been working on this for a very, very long time. Heaven is, what heaven is like, I, I mean, just think for a moment the best places that you can imagine. Heaven is handcrafted by the God who created the Amalfi Coast of Italy, which I just came from, and it is beautiful. This is handcrafted by a God who made peaches that when they're ripe, Surpass any other fruit, I don't care what you say. <laughs> right? The, the, it's handcrafted by a God who produced the smell of wood burning in a fire or the turning of fall leaves. It's handcrafted by a God who has created for us the concept of friendship and relationship. It comes from a God who created laughter and Lake Tahoe and the Swiss Alps, all of the things that are just so beautiful in this world, this will surpass and be such breathtaking beauty and never-ending adventure with him. And I don't know about you, but I'm in for that. I'm in. I want to be a part of that. That's the book of Revelation. That's your whirlwind tour through one of the most challenging books that we ever read in the Bible. But I want to leave you with one word of caution, wisdom, if I can, is that it's tempting to get bogged down in all of the intricacies of the end times. Right? That when something like, we want to know when something is going to happen, how it's going to happen, who it's going to be. Like we, we get bogged down in these details. That there, there, There's been countless books and, and countless messages and arguments uh, and that have debated John's vision. And, and as, as your pastor, if I could just encourage you, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. Here's the only thing that really matters the end of time will really come. Times will get increasingly bad, but then Jesus will return. And at that moment, the only thing that will matter is whether prior to that moment of his return, you returned to him. If you get that, if you can grasp that, you can grasp revelation. Let's pray.